Hey buddy, I hoid the droughts moving in, muscling in on your turf. To make matters worse, the man keeps telling you to limit your spigot. That drought is bad news, no fooling. But me and my boys can help. The water boys, on the water zone, Thursday nights at six. We'll help you protect your turf and save water. And hey, don't worry about it. Consider it a gift. Yeah, Louie, you heard the boss. We got to listen in at 6 p.m. on Thursday nights. Okay, Vinny, you got it. The water zone, Thursday nights at 6 p.m. I'll tell our lawn it's now protected. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, 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 drought. Yeah, it's pretty clear, we're really short on blue. It's time to save it, save it, like we're supposed to do. Some say it's doom, gloom, and all our grass must go. But together we can make it and enjoy our golden state. It's all about that drought, about that drought. Well, good evening and welcome to wonderful October 13th on a wonderful Thursday downtown, broadcasting live here from San Bernardino. Welcome to the Water Zone with Mike and Rob. I'm Rob Starr, and Mr. Barron is off tonight because tonight is uh, our once a month where we feature our ag people, and we have our micro-irrigation group, and we have a great show, and the theme for tonight's show is Challenges Farmers Face, which is kind of important because without them, we don't get to eat. Uh, but before I turn it over to our, our host from the uh, micro-irrigation, I just wanted to uh, tell everybody who's listening, uh, you know, can you remember the last time you received something for free? No cost, no payment plans, no IOUs, nada, Zippo, just simply free. Well, if not, municipal water, uh, Western Municipal Water would like to help change your fortune. And Western Municipal Water District and many of its partner water agencies throughout California are offering free, high-efficiency sprinkler nozzles through their free sprinkler nozzle program.com. Available to both residential and commercial users, these high-efficiency precision spray nozzles are designed and manufactured by the Toro Company, and they've proven to reduce water uses by up to 35% when compared to standard spray nozzles. That's a lot. The installation process is as simple as unscrewing your old nozzle and replacing them with the new high-efficiency models. If you can change a light bulb, which hopefully you can do, you can most certainly change an inefficient nozzle. Heck, it's so easy, even a CEO can do it. So if you're a homeowner, you can receive $100 worth of the nozzles, or if you have a commercial property, you can obtain an unlimited amount of these nozzles all for free. And what you do is you go to freesprinklernozzles.com. You put in a little bit of information about uh, your property and the uh, your account number, and they give you a voucher. You download a voucher, and they tell you where to bring it, and you get it. No tax, no nothing, and you get $100 or unlimited if you're commercial. So to learn more about the program and to determine if your water provider is participating agency, visit the www.freesprinklernozzles.com or call 310 621 
4577. Once again, that's www.freesprinklernozzles.com or call 310-621-4577. And now you can get something for free. Anyway, I wanted to get that in before the show starts because uh, people take advantage of it. It can help reduce your water bill and actually give you uh, a better-looking vegetation and lawns because you're going to have the right equipment. Anyway, as I said, tonight's our Ag Night, and uh, we're going to turn it over to our MIB host, Micro-Irrigation uh, Business of Toro, and we have Miss Inge Bisconer and Paul McFadden. Welcome, both of you guys and ladies. Hey, thank you, Rob. Uh, we're, we've got a great lineup tonight. Um, our two guests are gentlemen who represent a lot of acres, a lot of acres in California, which means a lot of food. So I'm sure our listening audience will always be uh, interested in that. Do we get uh, samples? Well, you know, if we can figure out how to do that through the phone lines, uh, we'd be a, a, a ways ahead. So our first guest is uh, Harry Clausen, um, uh, who Paul will introduce in a moment. And our second guest is Ken and Michael with uh, Bulls Farming. So... I'll hand it over to my partner, Paul, here, and take it away, Paul. Thanks, Inky. Um, Perry, are you on the line with us this evening? Yes, I am. Excellent. Welcome. Thank you uh, Thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, just uh, in the way, as a way to introduce you, uh, as the executive director currently of the East San Joaquin Water Coalition, you also farm uh, nectarines and peaches near Reedley. So you've got firsthand experience, obviously. Um, you're not only the executive director of the East San Joaquin Water Coalition, but there's a number of other ag organizations, uh, including the Central Coast Groundwater Coalition and groups that work to resolve water quality problems originating from agriculture. Uh, You also uh, work with the Coalition for Urban and Rural Environmental Stewardship. You received your Bachelor of Arts degree uh, in communications from Cal State Fresno, and you've worked as an ag reporter for 15 years. Welcome to the Water Zone, Perry. Well, thanks again for having me on. appreciate the time to talk about water, farming, and food. <laughs> All three areas are near and dear to our hearts. Absolutely. Especially peaches and nectarines. I'm always a promoter of my crop, although we're all finished for the year. We okay. encourage people to eat our fruit. I'm starting, to, I'm starting to think about peach cobbler now. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting late. I don't know. <laughs> Perry, uh Tell us how you got into the position of representing such large groups of farmers on such difficult topics uh, where we're at today, uh, specifically water quality and the groundwater contamination. Well, sure. I'll I'll do a fast 30-year history here. I I grew up on a farm in the same area I'm at now, peaches. My dad had peaches and nectarines. He sold the farm when I was in college. I got a degree in plant science and agriculture communications. And because I didn't have a farm to go back to, I started working for farm magazines, writing about crop production practices and marketing and such, and did that for about 15 years, and frankly got a little bit tired of covering ag and decided I should become more a part of ag. For for about five years, I worked for the pesticide industry on some food safety issues they were dealing with in the 90s, and then uh, hung out a shingle and started to do freelance writing and working as a communications consultant. It was at that time that the water laws were changing in California and these groups were forming to represent farmers for uh, discharges of fertilizer and pesticides into waters of the state. 
So I, I started out a, a new career, so to speak, halfway through my life working with farmers to try to solve problems that were, in, in large respect, caused by us and, and other uh, entities. You know, Perry, uh, you gave a great presentation at the um, California Ag Irrigation Association meeting. You, you were you were the keynote at that meeting uh, back in the September, giving kind of a history of how all these regulations have come into place and why. I wonder if you could um, kind of give us a snapshot on that for our listening audience as well. Well, back in the Richard Nixon administration, the Clean Water Act was adopted. That was the monumental water regulation in, in the federal government that was adopted really to address discharges from wastewater treatment plants, sewer plants, factories, and other industries into not only lakes and streams, but in the ocean. And the first focus of that regulation for the first really 25 years was those major discharges because they were, they were pretty much unregulated in the 60s and 70s and then began that, the, the Clean Water Act implementation in the 80s and 90s. Agriculture was, was, was considered a minimal uh, polluter compared to those industries. So through the 90s, or by the 90s, those industries pretty much cleaned up their act. They had extremely strict regulations as they do today and agriculture was was given waivers from those regulations that changed in california in 1999 when the california legislature ended the waivers from permits that that uh, farmers enjoyed for all those years and decided it was time to regulate irrigated agriculture particularly in the central valley central coast and in the major farming areas of southern california so when they when they pass that law, they give farmers an opportunity to either get individual permits or to form these these groups, these coalitions, to represent their their operations in a geographically based uh, uh, area. So we have coalitions, we call them coalitions, that represent farmers in Central Valley. We have twelve of them now. I represent one of them. And we have almost a million acres, 700,000 acres with 4,000 farmers that we represent on behalf to the regional water board in, in Sacramento. So the Central Valley, Central Coast, all these farming areas now have what's called irrigated lands regulatory programs that are de developed to, to regulate discharges into surface water and into groundwater. And I might just add um, that... As you said, this is these regulations that you're speaking of for water quality are under the irrigation uh, irrigated lands regulatory program ILRP, which is not even touching upon the latest uh, legislation and regulation, which is for groundwater, the Sigma. So, um, just to clarify for the audience, so this is one set of regulations that you're dealing with, and there's a whole another layer of regulations that are coming on for. Uh, quantity of water as well as the quality. Is that correct? Right. There's two major areas. There's water supply. That's the, the water delivered through canals and such from Northern California to Southern California, groundwater as well. Then there's water quality. So there's two different divisions, so to speak, of, of state government that regulate those two areas. So we're, the area I'm working in is water quality. Got it. All right. Thanks. So, Perry, what is your, given we're in our, what is this, the fifth or sixth year of the drought, depending on how you quantify it, 
What is your outlook uh, going into the fall and winter months in your coalition, and and uh, what are you projecting for 2017? I mean, these are some pretty onerous things we're facing as a group of uh, citizens in the state uh, where where our food is produced. And, and with groundwater legislation and and water availability issues, where do you see that? Uh, where do you see that going? Well, the drought, drought certainly has impact on water supplies. Our rainfall, our groundwater tables are falling because of the lack of rainfall and recharge. In the arena of water quality, we we have a very steady or or straightforward mission or or charge that we have to do. We're wor- worried about and focused on contamination of groundwater and surface water. So, it's really not a it's not a component as to how much water is is in our aquifers or rivers. We are frankly focused on preventing as much as we can any contamination of either surface water or groundwater. So the amount of rainfall, the amount of drought certainly can have some effect, a great effect on farmers' ability to produce crops, but we continue to focus right now on groundwater and fertilizer applications that may have a potential to leach into groundwater and, and cause problems. So <clears throat> explain, if you would, to the listeners, who's helping farmers with these decisions and these improvements or upgrades to their farming and practices or businesses uh, in comparison to past practices? Obviously, with the, the number of regulations that are being uh, now levied against the farming community uh, to clean up uh, what what we are doing as a group, but also um, what's going to happen in the future in terms of reporting and and uh, so my I guess my question is what are what what who is helping farmers do this in addition to the coalitions or maybe you could explain how the coalition and maybe others are are uh, helping farmers with these uh, with these uh, new regulations. Well, it's fortunate there's so many new advances in technology happening right now in both irrigation management and electronics or in electronic control of irrigation systems that enable us to do a much better job irrigating because water is the transport of fertilizers and pesticides. So if we can efficiently apply fertilizer water, we have a much less chance of causing any contamination. And fortunately, at the same time that we've had these increased regulation, there's been a, there's been a lot of work done by companies like you all work for that show us, show farmers that we can do better in crop production by using these systems. So when we have an improved irrigation application, we actually do a better job with applying both fertilizers and pesticides. And that's the same way with a homeowner or a landscape or anywhere that water is used. When they have a good water watering system and there's no runoff or excessive applications, anything that's in, involved with pest control or nutrient management are also improved. And so what we have private industry helping us, University of California Cooperative Extension is a great help. I mean, they've really helped develop these and refine these technologies over the last five to ten years. And we are, we as coalitions serve as a conduit to the information that, that industry and the universities develop so that we can ensure that the growers know what's available to them, uh, if they are, if they are in need of information. 
Yeah, and I have to I have to support your statement that uh, even even though they're adopting technology to solve a problem per se, they they you know I I, I think I think most of them realize it's making them better farmers as well. Right. Uh, do, do, do well, you believe? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and the, the thing about. That, that I often talk to people and they say, what do farmers think? Well, I have 5,000 farmers, I'm oh, sorry, 4,000 farmers in the East San Joaquin, almost 1,000 on the Central Coast. And in that group, you have all the way from the latest technology. They use their iPhones. They use the latest computers to guys that keep the records on their dashboard. And the guys with the dashboard record-keeping are, are having their kids take over, and they're moving into this higher technology so we're we're in a in a transition generation now to to going to these better techniques and it's it's encouraging to see that there's so much more person personnel out there and people that that can do and operate these systems to help farmers do a better job in, in producing food yeah no that's fantastic what what I often wonder is whether it'll be more technology or these improvements will be more technology driven you know like equipment you know like like drip or like drones, we're going to be hearing um, probably a lot about drones from our next speaker or our next uh, guest. Um, or is it more the the human element of it, the behavior part of it, like deciding when to irrigate, the irrigation scheduling part of it, or you know making the decision, the management decision to go perform maintenance on the system? Do you think it's more of one or the other, or maybe a, a combo uh, of these? Two major areas is it, is it is it parts or is it you know uh, behavior? <laughs> well, it's it's all of the above, and and, and again, it's, every farmer is at a different level of adoption of technology. But we as farmers, we're risk managers. We we have to manage the risks that we can tr- control because there's risks that we have no control over. The temperature, the weather, with our soil conditions, we can improve them to a certain extent, but those are things that we have no control over to a large extent. So as much as we as growers can can minimize the risk, we have a better chance of of producing good crops, of being able to make enough to to survive to go to next year, and maybe if, if things all work out well, we make a little bit of profit so we can improve the equipment technologies that we have. But yeah, it's it's really a mindset, and and we really have a challenge with with especially fertilizer use because it's never been regulated before, and it's one of those things. And anybody that has a lawn or a garden has has experienced this that you put you put some on, you you see a green response, but how much is the exact amount that you need so there's no excess fertilizer that may move into the groundwater? That's that's a very difficult thing to to determine, and it, it, there's a lot of factors that are involved that that we need to understand better. So anybody that's a young person out there that wants a field that's unbelievable change and challenges, and that's in the management of crop growth, irrigation, agronomy, and such. There's really a need for people to help us make this transition with high technology and the challenges that we have with with the regulatory uh, structure we have now. Yeah, we really need to up our game and, and really be, uh, uh, it's almost prescription um, um, levels of, of, you know, fertilizers and pesticides and crop uh, protection chemicals. Um, we, we have to be very precise now in order to do what you just said, put it on right where you need it and not waste it or have it go where we don't want it to go. 
Yeah, big challenges. Perry, uh, just was curious, having said all this, what do you think farming is going to look like 20 years from now? If you I, have I look think we're already ball. seeing the beginnings of a change in, in the adoption of technology that's making us more efficient. I know your next guest, I, I know him not real well. I know some people that work for him. Farms like that are, are the future. We, we are going to continue to produce. We need to produce food for a growing population. We, we select the crops that, that are important or that make, make a profit that keep us around. I know almonds have been taking a lot of, of, of beating lately for being a crop that's using too much water and why are we growing it? Well, we need to be farmers. We need to have farmers in place growing crops that are, that are, that the market really wants. So it, it's just something that, that in the future we're going to be very selective on our on our cropping patterns and the inputs that we use, the technology we use, and and the people that can't adapt are going to move on to other professions. But there's a bunch of us out here, and I know many of them. Your your next guess is one of them that are here to stay. We're going to f- figure out a way to adapt to these stricter regulations and do a better job where we where we need to. Some don't need to do a need to do a better job, but those that do will figure out how to do that and and continue to be the most productive farmers really in the world in our state. You know, uh, I think we only have uh, like one minute left, and I'm dying to know. Do you have like a killer peach cobbler recipe? <laughs> I think the best place I'll play technology, Google it, and you can find a million (laughs) peach recipes. I'm we're eating dried peach uh, cobbler now because I have dried peaches that I grow, and there's there's actually some outstanding recipes to make peach cobbler cobbler with dried peaches. Oh, oh, okay. I'll have to look into that. I know a Dutch oven works really well too. I've I've tried that, so I'll have to get some of your peaches for for my next uh, batch someday. Well, any other last thoughts, Perry, before we uh, sign off and go to a commercial break? No, I appreciate the time to be able to talk a little bit to your audience and yourselves. I think this is, as I said earlier, we need young people that have a lot of energy and enthusiasm about helping grow food because it's just, it's a growing population. It's incredibly technology-based now. It's getting more so, and there's there's so many opportunities out there for young people to, to help us grow food that's that people people love to eat, and that's why, in part, why I, wherever I go, I have a box of peaches in my trunk or nectarines to to share with people, so they can understand what what it is we're about out here in agriculture. Well, I agree. Uh, growing up on a farm, there's nothing like it, and if you didn't get to do that, uh, you can still work with agriculture, and it's a great it's a great occupation and a great career. Uh, if folks want to find out more, um, is your website a good good uh, place to go? The East San the ESJCoalition.org site, or is there something? Yeah, else that's about the best place to start, and you can get in touch with me there on on any of the things we talked about today, and I'd be happy to converse with anybody interested in these subjects. All right, thank you, Perry. Um, Iggy, we'll I have a question, if I can. Yeah. Hi, hi, Perry. Um, just a question with the scarcity of water these days and the amount of production that a farming operation can do. I noticed there's new companies uh, springing up that are making these freeze-dried machines that tell you you can store them for 25 years your food. And uh, one of the past uh, gentlemen who was running for president uh, in 2012 also uh, was, was, was harking on that. Um, do you see more people getting into that where they'll take the fruit at the cost it is today and they'll start 
freeze drying it and and putting it away for later when things get hopefully not so much worse? Uh, I think there's always going to be a small segment of the population that's interested in that. But I I'm always amazed when I go to my neighbor in the town five five miles from here. I see trucks from all over the country, semi truck loads. Dozens of truck haul, trucks hauling fresh produce to the grocery stores, and, and really the vast majority of people are, are hand-to-mouth with the food they eat. I think it's wise to learn those sorts of things, and the same as myself, drying my peaches. I mean, these will last for three or four years, and it's not a bad idea when you live in other areas to, to prepare for times when you may not when it may not be as plentiful and learn how to cook with it and such. But I, I don't think it's going to sweep the too much good fresh produce out there now available at a, at a reasonable cost. Do you think the farming operations across the border south are are doing anything to the crops in the United States or as far as the business is concerned? No. You know, the south of the border has always been an important supplier in the wintertime, and many of the California farmers have operations down there because a grocery store wants lettuce, tomatoes, onions, Every day of the year, and we simply don't have the climate in the wintertime to support that. So there, it's been, when I was back writing for farm magazines, I was covering these companies down in Mexico. And really the import, the transportation mechanisms and equipment we have now enable them to bring really high quality produce here. And I'm, I'm really not worried about pesticide residues because it, it only takes one time with one of these companies having contaminated produce and they're blacklisted. And they, they can't afford a risk like that. So I'm, I, I'm really confident that they're, they're filling the niche just like the almond growers are and the peach growers are. And we have a very sophisticated marketing system out there that knows when it needs what it needs at certain times, and we're filling those needs. Great. Well, thank you for that. All right. Well, thank you, and uh, good luck, and we'll be in touch with you soon, Terry. All right, Angie. Thanks, thanks for the time. You're welcome. Great. We're going to take a little break and hear from our sponsors and be right back to the Water Zone. And uh, we'll see you in a sec. Oh, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone. And uh, if those of you who want to call in and uh, talk to some of our guests or ask Inge or Paul a question, please do so. The call-in number is 888-909-1050. And if you're local, uh, 909-888-5222. And we'll turn it back to Ms. Inge Bisconer and Mr. Paul McFadden. Thanks, Rob. Um, yes, we're uh, anxious to, to speak with our next guest. Uh, Cannon, are you on the line? I'm here. Can you hear me Okay. Yes, we can. Very, very good. Thanks for calling in. Um, uh, Cannon Michael is uh, president of Bowles Farming, and uh, yeah, he's kind of a very famous great, 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 great grandfather um, um, of Hen- Henry Miller. Um, he's a sixth-generation farmer and was just recently named uh, the president of Bowles Farming, actually just uh, a couple of years ago in Los Banos, and grows about 11,000 acres of Cotton and wheat and fresh market and processing tomatoes, fresh market onions and uh, cantaloupes. Uh, so in this um, position, Cannon's been leading in implementing the use of innovative farming technologies, including GPS and drip irrigation, and uses a variety of production, uh, production methods, including the planting of transgenic varieties and 
uh, organic methods. Cannon's been really active in a number of ag organizations, including the National Cotton Council and the Cotton Council International, and he's also past chairman of the California Cotton Growers Association and the Cotton Foundation. He regularly advocates on behalf of ag, which we're going to be hearing more about, at his Twitter handle of at ag leader. So, Cannon, your your grandfather's great grandfather was Henry Miller, who some some who will follow uh, ag history in the state uh, will know that at the turn of the 20th century was one of the largest private landowners in the United States and was the driving force behind uh, the famous Miller and Lux firm. Please share with us how Bowles Farming, an 11,000-acre operation, has evolved and endured over six generations and how you've met recent challenges after taking the helm as president of Bowles Farming two years ago. Well, yeah, thank you uh, for the introduction. Um, you know, obviously, uh, from uh, what Henry Miller had once built and very impressive as a young German immigrant coming with, uh, you know, very little education and uh, just a really basic background in, uh, in butchering, he was able to uh, to partner with another uh, German immigrant, uh, Charles Lux, and they were able to uh, really put together quite an operation and uh one of the first vertically integrated uh, meat operations uh, probably in the country, definitely in California. Um, what, what he did well was, was have a lot of vision and, and secure, uh, secure water rights and, and you know, be very, very forward-thinking about how the valley uh, was being developed. Uh, what he ended up not doing so well was being uh, uh, good at succession planning, which uh, for most farms is, a, is an issue. Um, he uh, generally liked to do things his own way. His, his partner, Charles uh, Lux, died uh, fairly early into their uh, relationship, and he was uh, pretty much the controlling person at the helm. So um, he didn't do a good job of preparing the company for transition, and so as a result, uh, they were faced with a number of uh, difficulties from, uh, from the earthquake uh, in the early uh, 1900s, and he was by that time then towards the end of his life, and then uh, the subsequent uh, depression followed up by uh, some changes in the marketing uh, where the, the meat packers from the Midwest were uh, able to, uh, through rail, get their meat uh, into the into California. So sort of a disruption there, and the family wasn't uh, all that well positioned to, to, to lead the organization. And so they sold a lot of land. And so from, you know, from a million acres down to 11,000, or to, we're actually at 12,000. Now we picked up some land last year, but... Uh, it's uh, obviously quite an evolution and quite a change, and you know, to me, there's obviously a lesson to learn uh, in there somewhere because uh, it's quite a quite a reduction in acres. But uh, you know, we're really focused now on uh, you know making the acres that we farm the most productive that we possibly can. Um, living in farming in California is a very very difficult and rigorous uh, regulatory uh, environment that we face, and a lot different than uh, anywhere else in the world. So. Um, we're really focused on, you know, pushing our uh, limits of technology to uh, to make us efficient, uh, making sure we have a proper uh, crop rotation to uh, to deal with uh, soil and fertility. Um, we're we're just really exploring uh, all the ways we can be, you know, the best stewards of the environment, uh, provide a workplace that's uh, safe and uh, and ethical. Um, you know, we have a defined benefit pension plan for our workers, which is very. Uh, expensive to maintain, but something that we feel is uh, is our duty as a as an employer to uh, make sure that uh, after people's uh, service with us that they uh, have a have a proper retirement, 
and uh, so we uh, we pride ourselves on on being good stewards of the land and good stewards of our people and and just trying to do the absolute uh, best that we can do. That's uh, that's outstanding. Thank you for the the history. Uh, I know uh, I don't know if you happen to hear our previous guest uh, Perry Clausen uh, uh, really lift uh, Bowles Farming up as one of the farms of the future as a as kind of a, a bright light, if you will, in the in the farming industry today. So uh, uh, that's uh, pretty high praise coming from Perry, and I just like to point that out and say, uh, well done. Oh, I appreciate that, and I wish I had. Unfortunately, I was uh, correcting a little math homework of one of the boys, and so I wasn't able to get on a little early. But uh, I appreciate what Perry does and his perspective, and uh, I think there's uh, obviously places in agriculture for the first generation farm to the sixth generation or whoever i'm i'm proud of all the folks who can participate in california agriculture because it's uh it's not an easy uh, place to do business and and not an easy business to to be a part of well correcting uh, math homework is uh, probably equally as important right about now for you i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) um just a quick uh, question for you canon you recently hired a vp of technology which i'm sure is quite quite a unusual uh, billet for uh, for folks in the ag sector today, uh, who's working with drones, advanced uh, agronomic tools, and technology. I'm just curious what your thought process was to number one hire somebody like that. Obviously, you're very progressive in your thinking, but what are the benefits to, that you see to implement those technologies, and how is, how is how are you actually uh, implementing them today on your farm? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I, I've really, uh, since I came back to the farm, and I think probably I, I really worked a lot in the on the farm in high school. Um, I wasn't raised on the farm. I was actually raised more in the Bay Area, and I didn't formally train in agriculture in my uh, in my education. I uh, actually was in commercial real estate uh, in the southeast in Atlanta before coming back to the farm. So. I think uh, even in the real estate business, I was interested in technology and how that could help me uh, acquire leads and do different things and databases. And so I had an affinity for that. And, and when I came back to the farm, I think I was able to kind of start with a different perspective than some. And pretty quickly, uh, I had a lot of sideways looks with some of the original kind of in- things I was doing and looking at satellite imagery back in you know 2000 and trying to figure out how we could do variable rate and uh, focusing on you know inputs and where where the best use was and so uh, from an early point of my career I made technology a, a focus of mine and um, you know pretty quickly the the guys and uh, caught on and saw that uh, you know our fields were looking more uniform and that you know through variable rate applications we could you know take care of some of the issues that we had seen over the years and so was able to sort of uh, win some confidence uh, in something that wasn't widely accepted at that time. Uh, as we transition more into drip irrigation and efficiencies and uh, yield improvements, uh, it's been proven results over time, and I think we're really into a, an accelerated period where we're going to have to uh, even get better at what we're doing. Um, the the landscape in California, really on the regulatory side, is changing in ways that are going to directly impact our bottom lines, and uh, without being uh, focused on how to be more efficient and streamlined and how to maximize production out of every uh, acre that we have, uh, I see a pretty uh, pretty bleak future for people who are just uh, raw producers of products. Um, you know, we're subject to the whims of the market, 
uh, especially with uh, getting into more of the vegetable crops that we've uh, gotten into. And we've added actually this last year, you gave a good listing, but we added watermelons and carrots and uh, we've got uh, several other crops that we're, uh, that we're planning to bring on. So um, it's a, it's a changing environment. And, you know, when my uncle retired several years ago, I, uh, I was no longer able to play as active a role as I wanted in in the tech implementation and, and staying on the cutting edge was getting harder and harder with all the other responsibilities. And so bringing on a, a young, talented, and energetic uh, person to uh, to spearhead that uh, technology aspect is uh, has been a wonderful addition to the farm, and I think it's going to lead us uh, into the future, which I'm definitely uh, excited about. Well, you're you're definitely on top of it. If you were looking at uh, satellite imagery back in 2000, that you, you really were one of the pioneers in that respect. That's a while back for for uh, that. That's fantastic. Well, in addition to all the technology challenges, then you've also had to address the the water issues, uh, not just irrigation, but water water rights, which also have a long history. I think in your in your organization and in your family. How how have these water rights been used recently, or or sold, or traded um, during this drought uh, period? I, I think it's kind of a, a new a new frontier for many farmers that this is an asset that um, not only just supports a crop but can be traded and it's a commodity in and of itself. How is that working? Folks. Yeah, there's there's always been uh, you know the the uh, the transfer of water from one area to another is considered a beneficial use by the state of California. So that's that's been happening for for, for quite a while. Um, there's uh, water rights holders in the northern part of California, mainly rice growers, who are uh, at times able to uh, transfer water south and and get it to areas where people are you know it's a willing buyer, willing seller uh, model, obviously. Um, since our farm has been where it is, and, and Henry Miller uh, really was an uh, instrumental figure in, in, uh, in water rights, and that water rights uh, law actually involved in some litigation that sort of uh, formed some of the basis of uh, what, what the system is today. Um, we do enjoy, and some of our neighbors, um, there's a, what's called the San Joaquin River Exchange Contractors. Uh, we farm within that, uh, that area. Um, it's a it's a small area relative to the size of agriculture south of uh, the delta there, but uh, it's about 240,000 acres share that water right. But um, it does give a priority to getting some water to our area um, south of the delta, and then that has over the last few years given some amount of flexibility um, to do some transfers where we can help some of the folks who had zero uh, percent allocations. Try to uh, try, try to alleviate some of that uh, stress of our neighbors, and uh, you know it's uh, it's been it's been difficult really because uh, California's relied on an engineered system, and not just in farming, but a lot of the uh, communities do in terms of San Francisco having uh, Hetch Hetchy, uh, L.A. using uh, some water from the Delta as well as uh, Owens Valley, and uh, even Sacramento. You know, they rely on the, the reservoirs to protect them from flooding. So, you know, back in the early 1900s, people, you know, realized pretty quickly that, you know, California, the north has a blessing of a lot of abundance of water, and the south uh, half of the state, uh, maybe more land mass and more area for people and better farming conditions. Uh, you know, if you can move the water there, the climate is perfect. Uh, 
yield better than anywhere in the United States and produce quality and consistency. And so um, it's been difficult to see the uh, the system sort of uh, ratcheted down in terms of being able to move water uh, flexibly. And uh, I know the, the the goal for for some of this is to try to improve fish species, but uh, through the last few years where there's been more flows dedicated to uh, to fish uh, through the release of water from reservoirs, uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, correlating to a an improvement in those species, so that's been a bit frustrating um, because uh, every acre foot that could be uh, moved south of the delta really does help uh, agriculture and communities um, and leads to uh, employment and uh, less pumping of the groundwater. But uh, yeah, the water rights are important. Um, it's, a complica- it's a complex system uh, to, to try to understand, but uh, it's a system that, uh, that helps ensure that agriculture does have a priority to get some water and uh, we're definitely not selling them or trading them. We will move some water around, but uh, the water rights are, are pretty intact from uh, from where they were back in Henry Miller's time. Yeah, and from what I understand, the trades that you made, you know, uh, you should be commended for, you know, doing it at, at decent prices. You know, it, it uh, probably really helped those folks survive by having a friend to uh, buy their water from rather than, Maybe somebody not so friendly. <laughs> yeah, well, it sure would be nice if just a little bit more could come south. It would just it would alleviate a lot of uh, a lot of issues. And uh, my hope yeah. is that we can have a more comprehensive look at the problems there in the delta because that is really an important place and uh, it's a very complex ecosystem. And so while while certainly the exporting of water will have an impact, um, there's a number of other stresses there that have been identified that are not being. Uh, equally uh, looked at or addressed. So I think any of us who work in natural systems realize that uh, usually complex things uh, have more than just one singular solution, and so we'd like to get to a better uh, dialogue with that. But uh, unfortunately, water in California is a pretty polarizing uh, issue, and there's a lot of entrenched uh, positions that are difficult to break down. That uh, I've noticed recently there was a in the... Uh on the Department of Water Resources uh, page, it showed that the different levels of the reservoirs around the state, and I noticed throughout the uh, year that the San Luis Reservoir had pretty much stayed the same. It's, uh, it's very, very low and has uh, stayed that way. Is that uh, an effect of not being able to, to move water south of the delta for, for the reasons you just stated? Yeah, that's a great observation. I mean, really what's interesting is, is if you look at Shasta all year long, too, in the north, so Shasta. I mean, this is going to be much longer, maybe than you want to do for your show. But Shasta is actually uh, connected to our area in a way that, um, when there's ample uh, rainfall and inflow into Shasta, we actually that's what triggers uh, the allocation for the San Joaquin River exchange contractors. And so w- there's a linkage there. And this year we had above-average conditions in in Shasta, but because of those uh, regulations, mainly because they were holding the water back because they wanted cold water for, uh, for salmon, um, they did not release water like they had in the past that, that then could have been moved south. And so, again, you know, it's a, it's a noble goal to, to try to save uh, salmon, but uh, if, you're not, if you're not seeing a return on investment uh, for, you know, holding, holding water in systems that were designed for different purposes, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's frustrating because, uh, I, I couldn't really argue, you know, if, if the fish species were doing much better and, uh, you know, we were seeing a big recovery, then I think you would say, well, you know, this is working. But uh, 
it's not working for the fish and it's not working for the people really. So it's kind of sort of a frustration right now. It's a, it, it, uh, between a rock and a hard place is the term that comes to mind. A conundrum. Yeah. Um, I know you were recently uh, uh, appointed as a board member of the Water Education Foundation. You're the only farmer on that board. Could you explain a little bit, if you would, please, what the mission of that board is and your uh, work uh, and, and importance as it relates to the board? Yeah, the, sure. The Water Education Foundation is, a, is an ex, uh, incredibly important resource for, for the state, and I would encourage anybody to, to look up the, the website and uh, understand that uh, it's an unbiased uh, look at California water, which is uh, very difficult, obviously, to do because there's multiple, like I said earlier, multiple positions, multiple uh, groups and thoughts, and so... The Water Education Foundation does an excellent job, first of all, putting out publications on a regular basis on a variety of water-related topics, but they also have amazing tours uh, from the very far north of the state all the way south, um, really trying to help educate people. Uh, there's a lot of uh, legislators and regulators and uh, all sorts of people just interested in California water that like to go on those tours and be a part of them. So. Not only will you get an experience where you get to interact with a very uh, wide variety of, uh, of people, but you'll hear from you know really engaged and intelligent speakers on all sides of the issues. So it really is, is helpful to sort of be able to frame uh, the dialogues and, and, and to kind of look at the issue from all sides. And, and so my hope of being part of it is that we can you know get to a point where we can have some of those uh, more intelligent. Uh, uh, discussions versus just having, uh, you know, the strong passion from one side or the other. Maybe we can find some solutions instead of, uh, instead of just pointing fingers at each other. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, something I would encourage anybody who has an interest in California water, uh, which really should be everybody since, uh, if you like to eat and you like to do those, uh, you know, wear clothes and those types of things, you should try to understand where, uh, where water's going and how things are produced and, uh, you know, where the, uh, you know, where the rivers are, where the fish are, and, you know, just understand the system. And uh, I think a lot of people are uh, are a little disengaged, and uh, it's easy when the stores are full of food and you don't have to think about those things. But uh, it is uh, an important resource, and it's one that uh, is directed in many ways, and we need to uh, to understand it. And I think the water education does a, does a very good job of uh, presenting the challenges and presenting the viewpoints and doing so in a, in a fair and uh, equal way. Yeah, Rita, Rita uh, Schmidt-Sudman, the former executive director, was a guest a few months ago and did a great job of um, also, as you, relaying uh, the importance of us learning more about water and those tours. I did the Delta tour in June. It, it was fantastic. I'm um, really fortunate to have done that. But well, we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your Twitter handle, you know, the ag, at AgReader? Um you know, I know that it basically says I'm a sixth-generation California farmer in the Central Valley. Water, regulation, immigration, environment are all concerned. Ag interests need to unite. What's that mean? Well, so I was that was actually part of when I was on uh, California Agricultural uh, Leadership Foundation uh, back about seven, eight years ago. They were wanting us to understand social media a little bit, and so <clears throat> I came up with uh, with that handle, and I, you know, it was more out of a function of being part of that group, but. Uh, I uh, I definitely do. I've always been frustrated by uh, California agriculture in a way, and that we're 
as farmers, we're very independent people and often competitive with each other. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a business where there's different interests because of water or crops or, you know, there's a lot of things that sort of, there's so many crops that we grow. There's a lot of diversity, um, you know, between different areas. There's, you know, different issues between resources. And so we've never always, uh, we've never been able to align very well. Um, our opponents seem to be very good at aligning. And uh, I guess I just see a trajectory where we uh, continue to lose uh, ground in terms of uh, water supply. Uh, we're losing in terms of uh, regulatory pressures that we're seeing. Um, we just continue to, to have a hard time pushing back or slowing down some of the some of these drivers that are really impacting costs, and that unfortunately I think will eventually uh, lead to uh, the contraction of, uh, of probably the smaller farms first, which will be a real uh, real loss um, in our area. We have a, a rich uh, history and uh, traditions of uh, Basque and Portuguese and Italian uh, farmers. Uh, I always hate to see the, the, uh, the some of the press that comes out of the Bay Area and some of the urban centers saying that, you know, it's all this corporate ag, and, you know, I could easily dispel that myth with about a 15-minute drive around our farm to, you know, a lot of diversity and a lot of uh, great people, you know, the family histories, but... Uh, the smaller folks just aren't going to be able to survive over time um, making the investments like we're doing with uh, solar and drip and being able to drill wells and, you know, doing all these things, uh, diversifying crops. I mean, the, the, the smaller farms just are not going to be able to hold up under uh, minimum wage increases and overtime and, uh, you know, just this constant regulatory pressure that we're seeing. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does concern me. I think, you know, we would be much more effective if we could, uh, on the issues that we can see eye to eye on, which there are some, uh, if we were able to, uh, to focus our energy a little bit better, um, I think we would, we would have some better outcomes. So, um, I have been focused on, on that and trying to, trying to get folks to work together, um, and, and find positive, uh, solutions. Yeah, I guess if, if I, if, uh, I guess I'd like to ask you what, if you had one thing to suggest that farmers do and families do and the government do, is there some common ground there or something that each of them can do to, to move the ball forward? Well, I think, you know, farmers need to continue to tell our stories. I wish more folks would be engaged. Um, I've been engaged uh, for a while, but I, I hate it seeming like, you know, I'm one of the voices out there that these uh, folks kind of come to often to talk to me, but I'd much rather have a much larger group telling the story of California agriculture because, it's incredibly important, and, you know, I, I did catch the tail end of Perry's comments there and, uh, you know, heard about food coming in from other other places, and, you know, I really bristle at that in a way because uh, we do such a different job in California being held to much different standards, and while I know that, you know, food safety is a concern for companies and they take care of, you know, those issues maybe coming from food coming out of Mexico, um, you know, they don't take care of their workers the same way that we do. They don't pay the wages that we do. They don't pay overtime like we do. They don't have the environmental regulations that we do. They use chemicals that have been outlawed and out, you know, banned here in California or not even on the market anymore in California. They're still using stuff. And that even goes from some of our neighbors who are competing against us. Arizona, uh, other parts of, uh, of the United States don't have even close to the regulatory, uh, regime that we have here in California. And so, uh, you know, through this drought, it's been good in some ways that people are starting to understand uh, water use. But, you know, you hear about ag water use a lot, but I really would posit that there is no such thing as ag water use unless I'm keeping the things that I produce for myself. I'm just 
transforming water into something that, that you use every day. And so I think if you're worried about water use and ag water use, you really should be worried about yourself and you should look in the mirror and think, you know, what am I doing and what's my impact? Because, you know, the animal, uh, anti-animal agriculture folks have done a good job illuminating how much it takes to water makes to, uh, to make a cheeseburger or a steak. But do you see people not eating steaks and cheeseburgers? I mean, people do every single day, and there's millions of them sold, billions served or whatever. So, you know, if you want to have an intelligent discussion about water use, you need to understand that it starts with you in the mirror and that from your socks to your sheets on your bed to the three times or more that you sit down and eat, you are a water user. I mean, the farmers are transforming stuff for people to use, but at the end of the day, the water users are the people and, you know, your green lawn in the city does nothing for me, but my tomatoes, my uh, crops are going to do something eventually for somebody. And so, um, you know, I think I just wish we would get more to the intelligent discussion that we can source stuff from wherever you want to source it from, but what's the environmental and ethical result of that? And is, you know, local, sustainable, healthy food uh, that's produced in California, is that only for the people who can afford it in the farmer's markets? Or is it for the average person who lives and works and, and maybe works pay, pay, paycheck to paycheck? I mean, to me, it's a social justice issue. People should have access to fresh fruit and vegetables that are produced in California because we're doing it differently. We're taking care of the workers. We're taking care of the environment. You know, we've got a very positive story to tell. So, sorry if You're I'm here. becoming a little You're bit here. passionate. Yeah, very, very well said. I don't, yeah, think, I don't think we could top that if we tried. Yeah. And so thank you for that. I, uh, that was great. In the, uh, in the minute that we have left, uh, I'd just like to say uh, for those, uh, please take a look, or the listeners, please take a look at the Water Education Foundation. And, Cannon, thank you for your time. Uh, we appreciate your comments and, and the fact that uh, you took time uh, away from your family to come and share your, this information with the listeners uh, on, uh, on to, the water. Happy to do it. I'll go off to make dinner for the boys, but thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, Perry, Perry did a pretty hard sell on uh, – uh, talked about the opportunities in agriculture and it's exciting career. We need young talent, uh, big problems, but also big solutions on hand. So uh, go feed those boys and hopefully they'll come in too. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and the, and the challenge is I do see opportunities, so it's not all negative. But uh, yeah. we do need people to have a little bit better understanding of, uh, of their role in, in uh, water use. But appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for joining the Water Zone.